Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would at this time, as your word is proclaimed, give us ears to hear, hearts to receive the truth that is before us this morning, that you would be glorified, that your people would be edified, and I ask that you would graciously provide me the ability to communicate this truth and first and foremost, a way that is honoring to you and correct to minister to your people, to ascribe the glory that is due to your name, the author of this glorious word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would, open to Romans 7. We'll continue where we left off. Verses 14 to the end of the chapter. The Word of God reads, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells (coughs) in my members. (coughs) Wretched man that I am, Excuse me. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As I continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, it causes me to realize the biggest problem in my life. And the biggest problem in my life as a Christian is me. Oftentimes I am a mystery to myself. (laughs) Amen? I clearly understand and identify with Augustine's prayer that said, Lord, deliver me from that evil man, myself. Can I get a witness here? (laughs) I'll think, or I will do, or I will say something and wonder, where did that come from? Right? And we all know better than anyone can see from the outward what goes on inside of us. Right? Talking to Christians here now. Amen? 
That is precisely what Paul is describing here in Romans 7, verses 14 to 25. The title of the message is Civil War of the Soul. Civil War of the Soul. Civil war, obviously, is, is, is a war between citizens of the same country. And here, it's a battle between me and myself. <laughs> now, Paul's primary focus has been, in previous weeks, on God's glorious law. And he said some radical things about God's law. Although the law is good, its effect is not to curve sin. or much less deal with the problem of sin. The law can't fix sin. But rather, the law, as he described earlier in this chapter, the law stimulates sin within me. It arouses sin that's already there. That's the rebellion in us. Don't step on the grass. What do you do? You step on the grass. The sign says no, and you want to do. That's what we do. We're rebels. So the law actually makes the problem of sin worse Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. And this raises a new objection in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Okay, Does the law only bring death? Is the law then only a bad thing? To which he answers, of course not, by no means. By no means. It was sin, he says, producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God's law reveals the unmeasurable depths of our sin, of our innate sinfulness within that we have assaulted and offended the unmeasurable heights of God's holy glory. That's what the law is there for. It is like a mirror, as we have said. It can't fix you. It just shows you that you're messed up. Right? That's what the mirror does. It reveals something of you, but it can't fix you. Now, Paul has been describing himself pre-conversion. Okay, in verses 7 to 13, we're reading about Paul's life prior to Christ and the purpose of God's law. Now, there's a couple of key points that we must adhere to this morning to properly interpret verses 14 to 25. First, there's a, ver- there's a change in the verb tense. Okay? In verses 7 to 13, which we looked at a few weeks ago, Paul defines himself in the past tense. Talking, him, talking about himself before his conversion. Verse 9, I was once alive. Okay, that's in the past. When I saw myself for what I truly am, a sinner, I died crushed under the weight of the law. Describing again his life in the past, verses 7 to 13, which led him to salvation. Right? The law revealed the covetousness within And then in verse 14, he changes into present tense, I am. Verse 15 and following, I do not, I am, I am doing, I do, I agree, I'm the one doing it, I know, I wish, I'm doing, I find, I delight in, I see, all present tense. Describing for us post-conversion, new life in Christ. 
So that's one key we have to adhere to this morning. Second is a change of condition. That is a change of circumstance. In verses 7 to 13, sin killed me. And in verse 14 and following, he's pictured fighting with sin, struggling not to give in to sin. So Paul is not describing here, beloved, what, what and who someone is before they're saved. Now, some try to argue that point. I sat in my office one day with a woman who was here and who wanted to argue that point before she considered membership. She wanted to talk about Romans 7, of all things. And, and some try to adhere to this belief, and they, they look, for instance, at chapter 6, verse 2. It says, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Verse 7, and on, verse 11. But notice in verse 12 of chapter 6. Here, this is an imperative. This is a command. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So that imperative, that command indicates that Paul is prefacing the very battle he describes here in chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. This should be one of the most encouraging passages in all the Bible for the true believer. Okay, so you should be very encouraged this morning. And by the time we get through this, you have to remember when we were chapter 4 and I kept talking about justification by faith, justification by faith, justification by faith. What did I say? You're going to get tired of hearing about justification by faith, but you're going to need to remember justification by faith when we get to chapter 7. Amen? Take heed. (laughs) Okay, Paul is not describing someone here under conviction of the Holy Spirit who's about ready to be converted. He's not describing a believer in some deep pit, backslidden state who's neglecting the wealth of grace and rebelliously quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about that person. He is not describing a pretend believer who's never experienced the grace of God he, you know, not describing like false converts who, you know, the only sorrow they have about sin is the consequence of their sin. Second Corinthians calls that worldly sorrow, which produces what? Death, thank you, death. That's not the subject nor the person of whom Paul is describing in verses 14 to 25. But he is describing struggle, a struggle that doesn't end at conversion but a struggle that begins at conversion, okay? Very important to note. This struggle that he describes does not end when you become a Christian. It only begins there. There is no struggle before you're saved. Not like this. So Paul's describing himself as a converted man, as a Christian, defining this lifelong experience of growing in in a godly, ever-maturing manner. True believer, describing in every verse, with the exception of verse 22, that believers still sin. They struggle with sin. They fight against sin. Are you with me this morning, beloved? Okay, there's three points for us to look at. Notice the first is division perceived. For those that are born again, those that are Christians, they perceive, they understand there's a division here within me. This is real. Division within, 
which is clearly recognized by the believer. Paul describes a division within the human heart for those that are saved by grace alone. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. In other words, the law is divine, the law is good, the law, the, the law is God-given, but I'm of the flesh. Okay, the law, in other words, is spiritual with a capital S. With a capital S, the law of God is of the Holy Spirit. This is of God. It's not derived from man. It's not derived from Paul. It comes from God himself and is the reflection of his character, the glorious law of God. As he read from Psalm 119 this morning. And then Paul characterizes himself by saying, and I, I'm of the flesh. Okay, the law is spiritual. It is of God. I'm of the flesh. So here he makes a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. It's important to note, Paul is not saying here, I am fleshly, I'm immature, like he uses a, a, a word in 1 Corinthians, you know, carnal. He's not talking about that. Paul is simply saying, I still have a human nature. I'm still a human being. I still struggle with sin. Here then is the basis of the war within. The basis of the war within. Division within. Division inside our own hearts. Verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. Verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Is that division or is that division? defining that he's not fully able to attain the heights of what is good and what is right according to the perfect law of God because there's an intruder. And that intruder is the flesh. The intruder in your life is the flesh. So Paul provides an explanation of the battle between the spirit and sin within. The problem is not outside of us, friends. The problem's not outside. It's not the devil made me do it. We have met the enemy. Amen? And he is us. That's the enemy. That's the intruder. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are certainly no longer dominated by sin. You're not dominated by sin. Yet at the same time, you're not dominated by perfect holy obedience either. Right? Instead of either or, we're, we're, we're dominated by this inner conflict between the, the perfect law of God, the spirit, the law written on our hearts, and the flesh. So like Paul, we're simultaneous sinner saints. When Paul wrote this, he was a simultaneous sinner saint. He at one time was an absolute sinner before he was saved. And he will be, or he is now, because he's in heaven, an absolute saint. But when he wrote this epistle, he was definitely a saint, but yet at the same time, a sinner. That's the tension. That's the inner conflict of every true Christian. Now, this is not, by the way, some category that describes what some refer to as carnal Christian. You ever heard of that term? That's a man-made term. Some confuse commentators, as I studied this as well, 
um, believe that this is perhaps someone who's saved, but have no desire or no aspirations for holiness or righteousness. That's not the person being described here. It can't be the person being described here, friends. It's not possible because of, of the way Paul communicates. This is a very spiritual believer. This is a spiritual man battling with remaining sin, not wallowing in it. That's the difference. He's not wallowing in this sin. He's fighting against this sin. You see, this is why repentance is not something that we do once at conversion and then just forget about it. Amen? No. The true Christian life is an ongoing, ever-growing process of continual repentance. We confess our sins and we repent. Amen? And we entrust ourselves to the grace of God, that he's faithful to cleanse us. And we move on by faith. So Paul, he's addressing his fellow Christians in Rome who've experienced the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, growing to understand what that means, growing to understand what that looks like, and how to live faithful lives for the glory of the one who has saved us. And in doing so, Paul puts all human pride in its proper place, which is the theme of the gospel, uh, the theme of this epistle puts all human pride in its place. Because not only are we inept and impotent to save ourselves, it's completely through Christ alone and our confidence in him alone. Even as Christians, our ability to conquer sin in our own strength, in our flesh, friends, is also a complete impossibility. Amen? Now, There are those who wrongly teach also that a Christian can reach a level of perfectionism in this life. Okay, you've ever heard of of, of, uh, some denominations teach that you can obtain perfect obedience to God in this body? It's known as perfectionism. The higher life movement. Keswick Keswick theology, right? Keswick's theology's second blessing, so to speak teaches that you can obtain your entire sanctification, that is, holy perfection, in this life and in this body. I have never met a person like that. Just the fact that they think that they're there proves that they're a liar. Because anyone who says he has no sin is a liar, right? Come on. Okay, now Paul has already told us in chapter 6, that he is a new man in Jesus Christ. And he defines what a new person, a new man or woman in Christ, is like. But here he's telling us something else about himself that we may be tempted to overlook because he's the Apostle Paul. The law of God is spiritual, yet Paul still has a sinful flesh to deal with. And here in verse 14, I'm not entirely sanctified. That's what he's saying. I'm not entirely sanctified. I'm not completely perfected. I am not without sin. I still struggle with sin. I desire to live up to the law. I love the law. The the law is perfect. It's holy. But there's a division in my heart between what I want and what I do. Can you identify with that? So, number one, The the Christian life is characterized by a struggle. And the true believer understands and perceives this division within. They know it. They know it not only 
objectively because the word says so, but they also know it subjectively. Second point, division experienced. Division experienced. Verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. Can you see this man? I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do everything I hate. We can all relate to this this morning. Right? Sometimes the battle is within our thoughts. We desire, we want to have pure thoughts. The Bible says, think on these things. Anything that is noble, honest, true, just, pure, lovely, think on these things. We know what the law says. That is the word of God. And we want to have pure thoughts. And then you end up going down the road of thought which indulges desires that you know you shouldn't be desiring in your mind. Nurturing certain passions. And we begin to caress thoughts of hatred. We caress and stroke thoughts of bitterness. Right? Have you been there? Yeah, you have. So have I. And thoughts of envy. Just just that goes up here. It goes on up here in your head. That's enough battle. There's enough struggle there. But then sometimes it moves out from thoughts into words, into actions. You desire with the best of intentions to speak with words of kindness, gentleness, honesty, integrity, compassion, right, towards others. You desire that. And you end up speaking in a tone that is, uh, you know, satirically sarcastic, you know, saying the opposite. Oh, nice haircut. <laughs> nice coloring. <laughs> you know, or, or hurtfully sardonic, you know, to, to cut. Your intention is to cut. Or words that are hypocritical. Telling someone how great they are, you don't not mean a word of it. So there's this struggle. And then it shows up sometimes in our actions, Amen. We're resolved to do what's good. We're resolved in our minds to do what's honorable, yet we, finding, we find ourselves doing things that are not good, let alone honorable or praiseworthy. So that is the division within the believer's mind, within his heart, within his actions, doing what we do not want. This is Paul explaining. This is my struggle. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, get this, I agree with the law that it is good. Do you get that? If I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Paul says the failure to do what he desires to do is not characterized by a wrong attitude towards the law. Not at all. It's a positive view to the law of God because he recognizes his failure and concurs with the Spirit of God, that God's law is praiseworthy. It's praiseworthy because it's perfect. God's law is perfect. It's holy. It's orderly. The law actually instills within that what it demands is good, and that answers the question of verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? No. It answers the question, the perceived question of verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No. The law is perfect. And Paul argues in verse 15 that what he wills to do is exactly what the law demands. Exactly what the imperatives of Scripture demand is what he desires to do, but as he fails to do what the law demands, 
some might conclude that he objects to the law as a moral guide. That's not the case. Paul says just the opposite is true here, beloved. The fact that his will actually conflicts within himself with regard to God's perfect law shows that that part of his will, that that part of Paul's will acknowledges and agrees with the just demands of God's law. Calvin said this, quote, the godly man consents to the law with the real and most cheerful desire of his heart. For he wishes nothing more than to mount up to heaven, end quote. Right? It, it, the Christian, do we not desire that? We desire obedience. We desire to be perfectly obedient, but we know we can't. His will here is not opposed to God's law, but is conjoined in agreement to his glorious law. That's the point. That's why I question any Christian who has a problem with the imperatives of Scripture, who has a problem with the law of God. His will is conjoined in agreement. I was reminded of this when I was in Congo a couple weeks ago. Congo, what a place. Kinshasa, Congo, what a place. Eight million, nine million people. Dr. Van Horn and I were flying from Congo to go back to Kenya so we could go backwards to Cameroon. That's brilliant, isn't it? And he handed me his laptop and he, he said on the plane, could, could you write some thoughts about our visit this past week to Congo? And I'm going to read what I wrote. It's kind of weird to quote yourself, but I, I, bear with me, amen? <laughs> kind of explains it. First passage that came to mind was 1 Peter 3.18. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I have grown in grace this past week, not because of an oppressive sense of overbearing law, but rather due to its excessive deficiency. That's right. I'm reminded of God's abounding grace as we lived and traveled through the mass populace of the streets of Kinshasa, Congo. I'm reminded God is orderly. He's forthright. His law guides and directs his people in the way of righteousness, providing light for the path. This, remind, this reminder echoed within me this week as I witnessed a lack of societal law. Imagine what the streets of our cities would look like without any traffic laws. <laughs> Zoning laws, business laws, no smoke, smog, or pollution laws, and especially food service laws. Although those laws may exist in Congo, they certainly aren't enforced with any proximate degree that you and I are used to experiencing. Trust me. Like your like your van that you take your kids to soccer in. Okay, they use those as taxis there. In every one, I counted 24 to 31 people in each one. And then a couple riding on the bumper holding on to the luggage rack. Shacks all over the place. High, high unemployment. So people sell whatever they want. Use mortar oil is one. Just homemade potions. You name it. No zoning laws. There's just shacks Everywhere, black smoke, soot just bellowing out of the back of these cars as you breathe it. No, there's no smog laws. And, and rejoice next time you don't pass smog. <laughs> Amen? Makeshift businesses everywhere. There's an overwhelming sense of poverty in this broad city, much of which has to do with, as I've been told, a corrupt and lawless government. You see, law provides order, stability, security, and yes, freedom. 
Freedom from what? Freedom from anyone and everyone doing that which is right in his own eyes. Needless to say, I'm convinced that one of the signs of a Christian not growing in grace is to chide against the law of God and accuse lessons on obedience as less than grace-filled teaching. God is orderly. His law is an act of his grace. It drives us to Christ for salvation where we in turn grow to love his law as it is a certain reflection of his character, holiness, and order. Amen. The Holy Spirit dwells in Paul's heart as well as in every true believer. And the law is written where now? In the heart of the believer. In the heart of the believer. Therefore, you see, there is an agreement between the Holy Spirit and Paul's spirit that enables him to agree that the law is good, the law is excellent, I mustn't disobey it. And although he experiences an inner struggle and ends up disobeying, His voice is still joined consistently with the Holy Spirit in exalting God's law. The imperatives of Scripture. So there's a division. This is the division. He agrees, oh, the law is beautiful, yes. But I end up doing the very thing I don't want to do. So there's a division. What's the cause of the division? Paul explains it. Notice verse 17 to 23. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Evil lies close at hand. So, he calls it sin. He calls it evil. Verse 23, it's the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law of sin. We're like the law of gravity. It brings you down. Amen? The law of gravity brings you down. You lose your footing, the law of gravity brings you down. The law of sin brings us down. We know that the law is good. We see it is exalted. Sin brings us down. Now, Paul does not mean here that sin itself is to blame. Amen? Okay? You you know, this does not free us from all responsibility. This does not remove us from accountability. But rather here, I must realize that I am so easily beset by sin. It is real and it is an operating principle within me as a saved sinner. This we must know. We must know this always. Verse 21, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. You know, even non-Christians created in the image of God who experience what's known as common grace, know something of this. And I was reminded of this on one of my flights home. I sat next to a a very nice young lady, 27 years old, and I shared the gospel with her. And where do you begin when you share the gospel? The holiness of God. And you go from the holiness of God to his law. 
and from his law to our sin and failure. That's the bad news, which leads us to Christ and his grace in fulfilling the law and then laying down his life as a sacrifice. And as we spoke, she understood the principle. She understood it's a common human experience. However, more than anyone else, beloved, it's the Christian. It is the believer who knows this reality because of salvific grace. The grace that saves. The grace that delivers us. Because of the new birth in Christ, we experience that which we experience in Christ Jesus and thereby we're commanded to carry out in obedience his word. Again, I take you back to chapter 6 and verse 12. Let not sin therefore what? Reign. Let it not reign. Control your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Only the Christian can abide in that truth, beloved, because only we have the ability. And who do we have? God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. But even as saved sinners... As recipients of grace, we have this sinful propensity towards sinful things, and it runs deep within. That's what he's saying. But we have to make a distinction, beloved. Having sin in us, still, there's a world of difference between having sin in us and living in sin. Amen. It's a world of difference. John Murray, theologian, 20th century, writes this, quote, there is a total difference between surviving sin and reigning sin. It is one thing for sin to live in us. It is another thing for us to live in sin. World of difference. The greatest and most fundamental thing about us, beloved, this is very important. The greatest and most fundamental thing about you as a Christian is not the sin in you. Okay? But it's who we are in Christ You're a new creature in Christ. That's the greatest thing about you. You must never forget that. You must come to understand that sin is not the truest you. Sin remains. The truest you is being in Christ. But we can respond as Paul, I find myself doing things I don't want to do. Things that are absolutely inconsistent is what he's saying with who I truly am. That's why there's grief. Amen? There's a struggle because this is not who we are. This is not the truest you, a sinner. The truest you is that you're in Christ, set free. That's why it's a struggle. And that's why I say people who profess to be Christians and they have no struggle at all with sin, they're not saved. You can't be. You can't be. Paul is reinforcing the reality of this new life in Christ. That's why this passage is such an encouragement. Seeing his sin as an intrusion to who he truly is. He's in Christ Jesus. And again, this is not living in sin, but this is sin living in us. This is what Paul refers to again as the flesh. That's our intruder. That's why you hate doing what you do when that's not what you want to do. You want to obey the word of God. 
and then this creates, this creates an experience of two things. All true believers experience these two things, and you can identify with this. The first is struggle and conflict, okay? Struggle and conflict on one hand, and on the other, the true believer experiences grief, okay? Notice, verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, In other words, my inward ambition, Paul says, my inward ambition is I wish not to sin. And if I were to make one final decision in my life, it would be, without doubt, never to sin again. Have you been there? (laughs) Like you blatantly disobey God. Right? No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, and God always leaves the way of escape, but instead of going the way of escape, you go the other way into disobedience. Have you been there? Right? Yes, you have. You've been there. Yes, I've been there. And, and, and we know it. We're, we're being convicted. There's the way of escape. Go through this door. No, I'm going to go this way. And we're just grieved. Troubled. Why? Because of your true identity. You're in Christ. And as I watch and as I listen to myself, as I observe myself, I see sin dwelling in my members and it makes me feel like a captive. That's what Paul's saying. John Owen in his famous work, Indwelling Sin, have you ever heard of that work? You do yourself a favor by reading it. He said this, quote, every act of sin is a fruit of being weary with God. With being weary with God. Owen defines this as hostility towards God. Working itself in aversion to God, that is repugnance towards God, and in opposition towards what is good. Right? That's us. Being in Christ, we have a heart that loves Jesus. You're in Christ, you love Jesus. You love him. Because you know he first loved you. So you love Jesus, but all the while there dwells the old miserable flesh that doesn't want to do things God's way. You don't want to do things his way. I want my way. I want my desires. I want my decrepit reasonings. A a subversion towards God. There's a core of rebellion there. This is what he's defining for us. All of which eats away like a cancer at the body if it's not mortified. All right? Thus the command again, verse 12, chapter 6, let not sin reign. And only the believer can obey. And believers do long to obey God's law because it's written upon our hearts. It just flashes in our minds. We know it. And then the flesh, the intruder, we end up falling prey to. And even when my desire is to obey and to do that which is good, to do that which is pleasing to God, verse 21, evil is close by. It's within an arm's reach, beloved. (laughs) Fact of the matter is, believers still sin. Are we clear on that? How then does a true Christian respond? Second point, grief. With a wrenched heart. Notice. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, because of Paul's feelings 
of bondage. He's no longer in bondage to sin. He's been set free. He feels like he's in bondage. He cries out in, 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 in uh, misery, not in or with a licentious attitude. Hey, sin's still in me. I will just give, give myself to it. I'm saved by grace after all. I'm forgiven after all. No, that's not the way he thinks. The word wretched translates a word which means hopelessly, hopeless. Hopelessly hopeless. Who will set me free from the body of this death? That's how the Christian responds. He's not complacent about sin. She's not complacent about sin. The believer, when confronted with sin, can never say, no big deal, I'm saved by grace. They don't take grace for granted. And if they do, as they grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, they quickly learn not to take grace for granted because it comes at a great price. A great price. No big deal, I'm saved. No. So the fact that believers still sin, that is one side of the coin. Amen? That's one side of the coin, but that's not the only side of the coin. Some Christians, that's the only side you ever hear about. That's the only side you ever see. Hey, I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm not perfect. Christians aren't perfect. They're just what? Forgiven. And that's their attitude that they carry along. I've heard that for years. I grew up in reform circles, and some people who don't really understand reform theology and the abounding, abundant grace of God kind of take license to go on sinning, and then they throw that phrase around all the time. I've heard it for 37 years, since I was 11. And it's bothersome. They don't view sin as Paul does because they've absorbed a partial view of grace or a twisted view of grace. And then you see it show up in their lives. They lack integrity in life, in business, morals. There's no upward growth. And the only way we can grow upward, beloved, is to go down. You want to see the heights of God's glory? We have to see the depths of our sin. In the opening, the opening sentence in J.C. Ryle's classic book, Holiness, which I'm going through with the men on Thursday nights, is this. <laughs> Quote, He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he is to build high. End quote. That's exactly what Paul is doing here. This sigh of humility, this sigh of humility, this is not boasting in free grace arrogance. We get that. Paul conveys here a certain kind of deep grief, a misery that a true believer has. A true believer does, doesn't just want to be forgiven. A true believer wants to be rid of sin, amen? He wants to be rid from sin. That's what we want. That's why we hope for glory. That's why death is gain for the Christian. Death is gain. And because of this duality, because of this, this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde reality, right? Are you familiar with that story, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde? His feelings towards sin, he cries out, not in flippancy, but in misery. The Christian grows to long for the day where he will be freed, not only from the domination of sin, but from the very presence of sin. This is what he longs for. 
And notice, who will deliver me, he says, from this body of death? Notice the answer. Because you do not want to wallow in this misery, right? This misery is good if it has its right place, but we can't walk around as Christians with our head down, kicking a can down the street. I'm just a hopeless sinner, amen? Right, amen? Amen. <laughs> No, we must not, because here's the answer. And this is the last, third point. Division pardoned. Division pardoned. This is deliverance from the grief of this division. You want deliverance from the grief of this division that you struggle with as a Christian? I mean, yes, we still sin, but that's not the end of the matter. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Thanks be to God. There's your answer. Truth compels me to admit that not only have I sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, but that sin is indeed still alive in me. Even for the great apostle Paul. Paul says it's working its way out of me in ways that I detest. Oh, wretched man that I am. But my deliverance is in Christ, for my deliverer is Christ. Amen? My deliverer is Christ. So here, he speaks with full assurance, knowing that indeed this conflict will end. One day, in glory, this conflict will end. So he goes to the source of all things good. Notice, the source of all things good, the eternal one, mighty God, and he thanks them. Notice, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We thank God. And you only have access to God through his son Jesus, right? Thanks to God, Thanks to God through Jesus, Savior, Christ, the anointed one, Lord, sovereign ruler who purchases and purchased full and freely our salvation for which he paid. We get it? That's our deliverance. In other words, the answer to my salvation, the, the, the answer to my assurance and your assurance as a believer here this morning is not through keeping the law. We love the law, but the answer and victory and deliverance is not keeping it. It's trusting in the one who kept it. So when we confess our sin, we must drive ourselves into Christ and his grace, not the law. And that's, that's the whole reasoning of this law. Yes, the law is perfect. Yes, it's beautiful. Yes, that's my desire. But, you know, I can't keep it perfectly. He enables me to obey, yes. But, oh, I struggle. It's back and forth, back and forth. I feel like a schizophrenic, <laughs> spiritually speaking. My deliverer is Christ, and he enables me. I can rest. I can rest. The only deliverance is God's grace and deeper discipleship, which adheres to that grace, beloved. Deeper discipleship adheres to the grace of God. Christians, they're not to remain in patterns of sin, claiming weakness of the body as an excuse. Amen? This is not an excuse. Or or to warrant those particular patterns of sin. We don't blame sin as a ticket to sin. We've been delivered. We've been delivered. So we move continuously in the victory that he has obtained for us. That's our answer. It's Christ. So how do we do that to close? How? Verse 25, notice he says, So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. First thing is we have to know this to be true. Okay, we know this to be true. 
This we know, therefore, we must remain watchful. If sin is right here within reach, we have to remain watchful. The Bible says, be sober, what? Minded, be watchful. We run the race with endurance, affixing our eyes on Christ. We must be watchful. John Owen also said, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We're enabled to kill sin. When you fail, okay, and you will, when you fail, you will fail, we ought to reply, as Paul does, with this in mind, that we love God's law, yes, we, the standard is holiness, and therefore, yes, I do hate what I'm doing. I love his law and I hate my sin. So a mature, healthy Christian responds as Paul does in Romans 7. And again, that's why I said months ago, don't forget justification by faith alone. Don't forget your position in Christ because your practice doesn't always match up, does it? So, as we remember this, we acknowledge this. Rather than trying to cover up our sin, right? Rather than trying to pass the buck, shift the blame, make excuses, let alone be flippant. We acknowledge this, we confess this, we trust in the grace of God to cleanse us, and we move on. That's the first thing we have to do. See, this is why true believers do not look lightly or dismissively upon their sin. They're continually repenting and confessing and leaning into the grace of Jesus Christ. Leaning in to our deliverer. Not taking it for granted. Maybe you have weaknesses. Weaknesses that stun you. Do you have any weaknesses that stun you? Besides the guy that's talking this morning? Right? They stun you. Your thoughts, do they stun you? Do your words stun you sometimes? Does your temper stun you? Does your greed stun you? Do your grudges stun you? Does your gossip stun you? If you're a Christian, you're sorrowful and you're repentant. And yet you begin to wonder, I don't know if I'm saved. I meet with dear people because they struggle with these things. I don't know if I'm saved. That's easy to minister to them because of their concern. Because of their concern, they can be assured they're in the faith because this is a struggle. They hate these things about themselves. That's the beauty of it. They don't dismiss it. But the people who dismiss it never talk to anybody about it. They don't want to be counseled. They don't want to be assured. They don't want to be reassured. No, they struggle. Why am I so quick to resort to my old ways? I can't be a child of God. I must be an orphan. Right? I don't deserve to ask for his pardoning grace again. Well, let me remind you of this if you think that way. You might not think you deserve it. You never deserved it in the first place. Amen? You never deserved it in the first place. You weren't saved by something great and grand that you did. It was by grace. You didn't deserve it in the first place. You didn't deserve it the first time, the second time, the third time, let alone the 155,000th time. Next, we must remain hopeful. We must be reminded of this truth. Know that this is a tension, that this is a struggle, 
And we must remain hopeful. And that is hopeful in Christ, our deliverer. He has provided deliverance. Okay? How has he provided deliverance? Number one, he's delivered you from the penalty of your sin. The penalty of sin. Divine eternal wrath. That forensic declaration that you are right in the sight of God, that is justification. You've been delivered in that sense. From sin's penalty. Secondly, you've been delivered from sin's power. The progressive work of the Holy Spirit delivering you, that's sanctification from the power of sin over your life. And thirdly, is that you will be delivered. It's already promised. It's guaranteed, actually. You will be delivered from the presence of sin. One day, when you will see him, you will see him as he is, and then, then, when you see him as he is, you will be like him. Never to struggle with this again. So, we have been, we are being, and we will be what? Delivered. You have been delivered, justified. You are being delivered, sanctified, and you will be delivered, glorified, when he takes you home. This is what we must remember. So you're, a, you're saved, not because of what you do, but because of what Christ has done. That's Paul's answer to the dilemma. That's Paul's answer to the grief. Thank God, Christ Jesus, my Lord. That is why, and I close with this, the last part of that verse links so brilliantly together with the beginning portion of chapter 8. Listen to this. Romans 7, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Chapter 8, There is therefore no what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, listen to these words closely, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that, here it is, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the Christian. That's the guarantee. That's the deliverance. That's the answer to the dilemma. That's the security. That is the assurance. Amen? Remember this, beloved. So it's true, we're not perfect. But yes, we are forgiven, but that's not all that's true for us. Verse 15 makes clear, believers still sin, that's for certain, but they hate it. They fight against it. They have the power and ability to fight against it because the believer who has received and understands grace is serious about sin. They hate it. These are marks of grace. Hating sin and struggling in Romans 7 are marks of grace. Marks of grace. So to anyone listening, every church attendee must ask, are the marks of grace evident in my life? Is this struggle real? Because it's going to continue. But you've been delivered. You're being delivered. And you will be delivered. Only in our glorious, mighty, wonderful, loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Be encouraged, beloved. Run with endurance the race set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
Father God, we do thank you for this hope, for the facts of deliverance, for the beauty of the cross, the blood-stained cross, which provides the the expiation of our sins and the propitiation, that work which satisfied your wrath as you sent your son to live this life in our place, condemn sin in the flesh, delivering us from sin's penalty, power, and ultimately its presence. This we hope in. Help us, Lord, in our weaknesses. We are all weak. We come in here as weak people, entrusting ourselves to the work of your spirit according to the truth of your word. So sanctify us, Lord, in the truth, for your word is truth. May you bless your people in remembering, remembering, remembering the glorious gospel, price that was paid to set us free as we continue to fight against and struggle against the sin which still indwells within us. For the glory of your name and the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.